Welcome to Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. This is Dave, and this is episode 11, More Myths. Public sector unions cause budget deficits is a myth. Since the 1980s, public sector unionism have found themselves under assault largely by right-wing think tanks and conservative politicians. These attacks have employed the same coded language for instance, public sector unions hurt government functioning. But the form of the attacks was largely indirect in that politicians did not seek to eliminate public sector unions from the scene, but rather reduce the funding for government in general, beginning with the anti-tax revolts of the 1970s. The right of collective bargaining for public sector workers was generally not attacked directly, except in the South and Southwest. But public sector workers were increasingly challenged. The forms of attacks on public sector workers were most often variants of privatization, particularly in the Reagan era. The myth that private sector can do it better was promulgated and repeated so often that many liberals and even some progressives accepted it as true. Privatization and subcontracting became a means for allegedly saving costs and getting work done more efficiently. Unfortunately, not even the facts to the contrary could undermine many of these ideologically driven arguments. The bottom line is that the public sector is both the guarantor of last resort as well as the provider of facilities and resources that have a broader social need and constituencies than can be provided by any one private sector entity. Because of this, they can't operate on the same basis as private sector entities. They aren't constructed to make a maximum profit, nor can they be... For example, think about the U.S. Postal Service. The USPS guarantees that a package can be sent and received for a given cost anywhere in the United States. If you send an envelope first class, it'll cost the same whether it is sent from Boston, Massachusetts, or Boise, Idaho. Imagine, then... What happens if mail traffic is privatized? The various studies indicate that the price between certain major metropolitan areas would drop due to the mail flow, while the cost to rural Montana would skyrocket. Fundamentally, this is all about different priorities and whether citizens and residents have certain guarantees or should be subject to the whims of the market. Public sector unions were illegal in most states and cities and indeed the federal government for a long time. They emerged slowly in the early 20th century and in most places first as associations. These associations functioned as advocacy groups. African American workers found significant racial discrimination in the postal system and federal government in the early through mid 20th century. Over the course of the 20th century, public sector unionism emerged as a significant current. In many respects, its rise can be tied to the fight against corruption and cronyism in the public sector. Prior to the introduction of public sector unions, and certainly prior to the civil service, the public sector was a reservoir for patronage positions, with little to guide the selection of the workforce, racial, ethnic, and gender discrimination were major features of public sector employment. 
not to mention outright payoffs for jobs. Public sector unions became an important instrument in the overcoming this corruption and favoritism by winning procedures that became standard protocols, including hiring and termination processes. But public sector unionism was also an important mechanism and indeed a movement which was instrumental in raising the living standards of those who dedicated themselves to public service. What public sector unions are able to do largely depends on the collective bargaining laws mandated by that state. Keep in mind that public sector collective bargaining is not determined by the National Labor Relations Act. It's determined by state laws, which is why it varies, or in the federal sector by the Federal Labor Relations Act. That said, there are a few general points that can be made about public sector unionism. Federal sector unionism and non-federal sector public unionism are markedly different in the federal sector. There's a prohibition against bargaining over wages and benefits. This arena has been granted to Congress. Public sector unions in the United States are generally denied the right to strike. If they choose to strike anyways, there are severe penalties imposed by courts. Public sector unions of employers at the state, county, and municipal levels where there is collective bargaining normally may bargain over wages, hours, and working conditions. The extent to which the union may bargain over any of these things will be dictated by state law. In the absence of the right to strike, binding interest arbitration exists in many cases. The idea is that an independent third party reviews the final bargaining positions of both sides and then imposes a settlement, which may be either of the proposals or some combination of those offered by the parties depending on the parameters given to the arbitrator. Before turning to the federal sector, I want to reiterate two points. First, the right to public sector bargaining and unionism means that the workers have to decide whether they wish to have a union in the first place. The second, and perhaps the most important point, is that the mere existence of a public sector union does not affect a state, county, or municipal budget. In fact, bargaining only affects the budget in one way. It guarantees that the budget decisions that affect public employees aren't unilateral. Where there is binding interest arbitration, a neutral third party evaluates the proposals of both sides and makes the final decisions. The political right in Arguing that the wages and benefits of public sector workers comes at the expense of the taxpayer, arguing in effect that public sector workers should not receive compensation that helps them live. Of course, the wages and benefits come out of taxes. The point is that revenue stream should be organized in such a way that it is fair, rather than pressing down on those who can least afford to pay it. The other factor is that public sector workers are doing a service, their job, for the larger society. Is this something for which they should receive inadequate compensation? If so, what are the ramifications for the quality of the workforce, not to mention 
the quality of the work performed. The wages and benefits that federal workers receive are decided by Congress, of course. Federal sector unions lobby Congress, but so too do groups that oppose the objectives of federal sector unions. Therefore, it's a matter of democracy, or lack thereof, whether federal sector unions should be allowed to voice the concerns of the workers they represent. The mere existence of federal sector unions, then, does not bring about any significant increase in costs for the federal government. One of the attacks against federal sector unions is on something that most people have never heard about, official time. Official time is time granted per the Federal Labor Relations Act for a union to perform the duty of representing workers. It's actually very straightforward. Federal sector unions are obligated by law to represent all workers in certified bargaining units, regardless of whether they're members. Further, the federal sector unions can't require payments from non-members for representational services, or they risk being charged with an unfair labor practice and face significant ramifications. Official time means that the union representatives can take time off from their regular job duties to represent the worker. The union representative can also take time off to conduct contract negotiations. They can't take time off, however, to lobby Congress or to organize other workers. Some right-wing politicians have alleged that official time represents an unwarranted cost for the taxpayers to pick up. This amounts to demagoguery. If a union is obligated to represent all workers in a given bargaining unit, and all those workers are not paying any sort of service fee, the union faces significant costs. Representation isn't just about grievances, but also involves looking out for the well-being of the entire bargaining unit without regard to union membership. If these politicians are really concerned about costs, they would ensure that non-members paid a fee, also known as an agency fee in the non-federal sector, to defray the cost of representation. No such proposal will emerge, however, because the attacks don't concern cost in the narrow sense of the term, but rather concern the very existence of organizations that represent working people. Therefore, it is important to understand that the myth concerning public sector unions allegedly raising costs and threatening budgets doesn't conform to reality. The real objective in going after public sector unions is to eliminate the voice of working people and to weaken their ability to significantly participate in political and legislative action that challenges the wealthy. It's not uncommon for certain commentators to make a statement like unions should just stay out of politics and focus on what's happening in the workplace. Such statements almost sound neutral and unbiased, but they decidedly aren't. In fact, they ignore the realities faced by workers not just in today's workplace, but historically. For public sector workers, their engagement in political and legislative actions as a more obvious consequence, but this isn't true of the private sector. Think about it for a moment. 
Does any workplace exist in isolation from the political and legislative worlds? Does the choice of this or that candidate for political office mean nothing? Consider this. Workplaces are affected by zoning ordinances. Workplaces are affected by taxes. Workplaces are affected by the existence or lack of health, safety, and illegal discrimination statutes. Workplaces are affected by public investment in infrastructure or by the failure to make such investments. Workplaces are affected by whether workers have the right to organize unions. Workplaces are affected by the level of unemployment and whether the, the unemployed have unemployment insurance. Workplaces are affected by trade legislation. The list could easily continue on. The fact is that workplaces don't exist in isolation, and the political and legislative decisions made each day have a direct impact on the work environment. Workers realized this basic truth a long time ago, but in the early years of the labor movement, those without property lacked the franchise the ability to vote, so their involvement in the political arena was either indirect or tended to be more violent in response to injustice. As workers began to form labor unions in the early to mid-19th century, they also began to form political parties that represented the interest of working people. The first labor parties, in fact, were formed in the United States. These early labor parties were a mixed bag of competing politics and programs, not to mention they generally ignored and sometimes outright excluded women and people of color. But what they uniformly acknowledged was the fact that the demands of working people at that point, largely free white men, necessitated politics and couldn't be resolved solely in workplaces. For reasons having to do with both the nature of the United a state's electoral system, plus decisions that were made by the founders of the American Federation of Labor, independent labor parties became rare. The AFL adopted the view that labor should explicitly not form its own parties, but should instead lobby the existing parties, in this case the Democratic and Republican parties. That these parties were heavily dominated by the influence of wealth and corporations meant little to the AFL. The dominant view in the AFL held that the formation and existence of labor parties was both a practical problem as well as a political liability. In their existence implied a struggle between classes, workers, and their allies versus the rich employers, which the AFL preferred to deny. Therefore, contrary to labor movements in much of the rest of the world, the AFL stood back from independent working class political action. Thus, the involvement of unions in the political and legislative arenas isn't something new, but rather has been a component of trade unionism from the beginning, even in labor movements that opposed established electoral politics such as industrial workers of the world. The union's activities were never restricted to the workplace. The IWW, inspired by anarcho-syndicalist politics, became legendary for free speech fights of the early 20th century. These fights were precisely about the rights to speak freely without fear of government or corporate repression. Although these struggles were 
mass actions, their aim was to force the government to rescind ordinances that restricted the right of union activists to speak openly. The employer class tends to turn to the political and legislative arenas to restrict the right of workers to organize and join unions, seek special tax advantages to encourage them to invest or remain in the area even if they do not need it. Consider, for instance, sports stadiums and the manner in which the owners of major teams turn the, to government for funding or financial inducements to remain in this, that city or to have a new stadium built. Opposed to tax increases on the wealthy, create employer-friendly regulations of all kinds. Look closely and you'll see an interesting pattern emerging. The employers aren't necessarily looking out for the interest of one or two workplaces, but rather for the interest of the employer class as a whole. One way they establish this is by forming organizations to advance their interests. These trade associations and groups such as the Chamber of Commerce represent the interests of employers in specific industries or components of certain industries and engage in an immense amount of political and legislative work. With the advent of the notorious Citizens United Supreme Court decision in 2010, corporations are able to pour vast sums of money into elections with little to stop them. Yet, ironically, it's the same employer groups and their front organizations that accuse the labor unions of inappropriately involving themselves in political and legislative work. While labor unions will often engage in political and legislative work that goes beyond an individual workplace or an individual industry, they do so because it is frequently the case that the interests at stake affect workers as a whole. Protecting unemployment insurance, for instance, is not limited to a particular industry or workplace. And if a labor union were to say, hypothetically, that the issue of unemployment insurance insurance does not directly affect their members what happens if there is a major layoff or workplace closing. A labor union cannot afford to wait until their members are directly affected by a calamity before they address it at the broader political or legislative level. The idea that labor unions shouldn't engage in political and legislative work flies against history and against the practice of the employer class. The day an employer renounces political and legislative involvement is a day one could imagine a labor union doing the same. But really, don't hold your breath. The nature of class politics and power in our economic system drive all players into the political and legislative arena, irrespective of their ideology and intent. Union members tend to vote Democratic in greater proportions than non-union workers do. While estimates hold that roughly 25 to 30 percent of union members self-identify as Republicans, that said, some unions such as the International Association of Machinists conduct dual endorsements in many elections. Choosing to endorse a preferred Republican and a preferred Democrat, yet what explains the tendencies of unions and union members to side with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? 
In the aftermath of the Civil War, a strange relationship developed between the Democratic Party and white labor union members. The Democrats of that period opposed the Civil War and the platform of the Radical Republicans, those in the Republican Party who wanted to pursue a deep and thorough reconstruction of the South based on racial equality. Some historians have made the Radical Republicans out to be sour politicians who wanted to punish the South for its treason. And there is an element of truth there. They did not want to punish the leaders of the South for treason, but more importantly, they were interested in a South that shed its legacy of slavery and offered a new world for the freedmen, the African former slaves, and for poor whites. The Democratic Party of the 1860s was the party that portrayed the Civil War as having been pursued by moneyed interests who didn't care about the white working man in the North or South. This appealed to many European immigrants who found themselves drafted into a war they didn't necessarily understand and often disagreed with, while watching more well-to-do members of society buy their way out of the draft. After the Civil War, the Democrats became the party of the that opposed Reconstruction, and as such brought about a very strange alignment between sectors of white workers and the ultra-conservative forces of the South, based among the former plantocracy, who wanted nothing more than to end the experiment in democracy taking place in the former land of slavery, but the northern white workers and the southern elite believed they had a common enemy, the northern industrial capitalists. In the North, the Democrats reached out to European immigrants and in time were able to take control of major cities through political alliances. In the South, the eclipse of the Radical Republicans contributed to the defeat of Reconstruction in 1876. That said, white racist terrorism in the South de-established the political situation combined with the fact that many in the North questioned the relative value of a continued Reconstruction. African Americans tended to continue their alignment with the Republican Party, at least until a shift began in the 1930s, when Republicans ceased to be the party of Lincoln. From the late 1870s on, the Republicans gave up any pretense of supporting African Americans, challenging the gathering storm of the Jim Crow counter-revolution in the South. The Republicans, however, did increasingly come to be identified with the wealthy class and a paradox given their roots in the fight for free soil and reconstructions. Elements of labor, particularly the left wing, greeted FDR with a high degree of skepticism on his election. He was a man of wealth and his 1932 platform for the presidency had been exceptional. Though it's true that he introduced proposed reforms in the first 100 days in office and as such shook up Washington, D.C., the initial framework for what was to become the New Deal was surprisingly influenced not by any left-wing vision but actually by Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini's corporate state. Despite Roosevelt's clear objective to stabilize and renew capitalism, major segments of the economic elite in this country were horrified that any concessions would be made to working people. 
and that any of the prerogatives those of the rich and the super-rich would be challenged. In that context, much of the economic elite, those FDR referred to as economic royalists, plied against him and discussed a potential coup d'etat. As part of his initial efforts at the New Deal, FDR introduced the right to unionize, in part with the aims of winning new allies in his struggle to make the New Deal victorious. This occurred in the midst of a developing mobilization of workers, both employed and unemployed. The rise of workers, plus FDR support for the right to organize, energized the movement. In 1935, this ultimately resulted in the passage of the NLRA, which guaranteed most workers the right to self-organization and collective bargaining. By the 1930s, organized labor saw itself largely allied with the Democrats. The Republicans fought the New Deal tooth and nail, and truth be told, only with the election of President Eisenhower in 1952 did the Republicans grudgingly accept some of the New Deal reforms. You will recall that Samuel Gompers, the principal founder of the AFL, 19th century, abandoned the idea of a labor party. Whether he had practical concerns regarding the nature of the electoral system or not, his philosophy was that organized labor should not have a political party of its own. The Democratic Party, after the ascent of FDR, created space within the leadership ranks for organized labor. This meant that the leadership of organized labor had a significant voice within the Democratic Party, at least on certain issues through the late 1960s. When the size of organized labor began to wane, however, so did its power within the Democratic Party. The leadership of the Democratic Party was willing to take their money and their participation to some degree, but over time, organized labor found itself less able to actually influence policy. The Republicans didn't create such an arrangement, and it's understandable why. As not to be confusing, think of it this way. The Republicans saw themselves as the party of business, actually big business, that would on occasion arrive at an arrangement with a union or set of unions. They didn't see themselves or even pretend to see themselves as a party of the working person and unions. As the 1960s evolved into the 1970s, the Republican played to the fears of many white voters regarding the demands of people of color and women and reframed their party of business in such a way that it became a party of social and fiscal conservatism. This was aimed at building a base for a ruling coalition rather than being pegged as a party for the rich. The Democratic Party had an alignment with a, the leadership of organized labor and became the party to which previously dispossessed social groups tended to gravitate. At the same time, at their core, the Democrats also were aligned with business, albeit with a different segment of the employer class than the Republicans. Therefore, the Democratic Party had to pay attention to different issues in the Republicans because the base of the Democratic Party with organized labor and other social groups especially was 
different from that of the Republican. Since the 1930s, organized labor leadership has largely aided with Democrats because Democrats have tended to take up various issues advanced by labor or at least give such issues a hearing. But the Democrats were never a labor party, and even when they were closest to the unions, they still worked to distance themselves to avoid accusations that they were in the pockets of the unions. The Republicans attacked the New Deal and after World War II went after unions with the Taft-Hartley Act. While they accepted certain key elements of the New Deal by the 1950s, they avoided unions or union issues. By the 1970s, they began an attack mode against the unions and worker issues. The Democrats had increasingly moved away from pro-worker issues, though with enough pressure Many can be forced to support certain initiatives. The leadership of organized labor, however, has shied away from most discussions of a fully independent program and has been reluctant to take any course that could be perceived as threatening the fragileness of the Democratic Party. This is largely because they believe that the absence of the Democratic Party there isn't a political poll that will pay attention to workers and their unions. Thus, so the thinking goes, one is forced to vote for the lesser of two evils. For those who suggest that unions always back Democrats, there are plenty of examples to the contrary. If the question is whether union leaders and union activists tend to support Democrats over Republicans, the answer is yes. The reason is largely based on several factors history, the greater likelihood that Democrats will back at least some pro-worker issues, and the greater likelihood that Republicans will take the social and economic position that are against workers, oppose the right of workers to organize and bargain, and frequently stand against justice issues facing many constituents of organized labor. Thank you for listening to Labor Know Your Rights podcast. We are at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. If you have suggestions, questions, would like to say hi or whatever, you can contact me at laborknowyourrights uh, at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe or follow on your podcast application you will automatically receive the newest episodes as they are produced. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us.